is The Edge of Innovation, Hacking the Future of Business. I'm your host, Paul Parisi. And I'm Jacob Young. On The Edge of Innovation, we talk about the intersection between technology and business, what's going on in technology, and what's possible for business. Welcome to The Edge of Innovation. We're here today with Alexander Lowry. Alexander, say hello. Good afternoon. Good morning. That's true. And when, when somebody listens to this, could be in the past, in the future, who knows? Yeah, that's right, exactly. So, Alexander, what are you doing right now? You're working with a school, liberal arts school, here on the North Shore of Massachusetts. We're in Beverly, Massachusetts, so you're working at Gordon College. I am the director of the Master of Science in Financial Analysis program at Gordon College. In a situation like this, I just abbreviated down to say the Master's of Finance program. It's a lot easier for everybody to wrap their mind around. All right. And so this is a new program at Gordon? It is. We just launched our first classes in January. Okay, January. So that's four months ago, five months ago? Yeah, so we're in May 2018. And so financial analysis, master of financial analysis. That's right. And this didn't exist before you were there. That's right. I was hired to launch and lead the program. I'll also be teaching it, but it's a brand new endeavor for Gordon. Okay, so you're an entrepreneur today. It's funny, I, you and I were talking about this before we started. I would not have thought of myself as an entrepreneur when I was growing up, but I, I am. Okay. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about that. You know, we're trying to get sort of more of a long-form story than just the soundbite of people and how they've gotten to where they are and, and why they're there. And so when you grew up, where did you grow up? I grew up in New Jersey. Not okay. too far from Newark. It didn't look like Newark, but Essex County, New Jersey, a stone's throw from New York City. Is that a good place to be from? I grew up in a town that was sort of a little bit of a bubble, sort of those homogenous towns. You envisioned as a very safe place, great schools, nice spot to grow up, but you had the access to New York City. Okay, cool. To the point where you start to think New York City is average. New York City is anything but average. Right. So you grew up in the shadow of New York City? Is that fair? They called us Bridge and Tunnel. Bridge and Tunnel. Wow. (laughs) Interesting. Um, How old are you? 40. 40. Okay, 41. So when you were a kid, what were what were you interested in? What were you going to be when you grew up? There were definitely times where I thought I'd, I'd be playing for the New York Yankees, which was my, my team growing up. Okay. That's a myth by everybody around here. Well, yeah, that's true, but we're an international, so that's okay. But then I, so I was probably about third grade. I was an all-star in a baseball team, but as you would see me, Paul, I'm six foot eight now. I'm a pretty big guy, so yeah. the strike zone got a bit massive. Uh-huh. I'm not a Stanton. I'm not a judge. I can't really keep up with the ball, so it was clearly not my sport. Okay. And at that point, we grew up and got bigger, and I thought I was going to be a doctor like my father. My, okay. Just to give you a sense of the medical family, my dad's a doctor, my mom's a nurse, my grandfather's a doctor, my grandmother's a nurse, my great-grandfather's a doctor. You kind of get Yeah, that. okay. Your dog's a doctor on TV. <laughs> Do you have any siblings? Two younger, younger sisters. Okay, so you're the oldest, so you've got to perform, you've got to do all this, and you decided to go to college, I'd imagine. Where did you go? Haverford College, outside of Philadelphia. Okay, not too far from home. Not far from home. It was actually the perfect distance. It was close enough I could come home when I wanted to, but too far for my parents to come every time. Okay, and what was the what was your, your course of study? So I was a history major. Okay. Haverford is one of those small schools, not too dissimilar to Gordon, but a little bit smaller, 1,200 students, great liberal arts school. We get to learn a bit about everything. You know, we were not great at sports. I played basketball, which, you know, God gave me a height, not a yep. ability, right? Mm-hmm. But it was one of those places where you could do what you wanted to do. I always loved history, read it, studied it as a passion. Mm-hmm. So for me to be able to spend four years as a deep dive was great. didn't necessarily lead to the right career choices because I didn't want to get a Ph.D. and didn't plan to be in education at that point. Okay, so history. What's your favorite part of history? What do you love to read? Well, I will put this into context. So I also lived in London for seven years. 
and I majored in American history. Okay. And the British like to make fun of you. Their terminology is <laughs> to take the piss out of you. Uh-huh. And so I would tell them I majored in American history, and they'd say, what well, did you study the second week? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we'll get to how you got to England, I guess. Sure. Okay. So you graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in History? Yes. And what happened then? Well, I had the equivalent of a minor in economics. So okay. at the time, Haverford technically didn't have minors then. They do now. And the only real business subject we had was economics. We okay. didn't have finance majors. We didn't have business majors or accounting so I did it about as much as I could have, I suppose, to be ready for business. So was, I you, was that intentional? Yes. So what gave you the insight to think that? I'd always been fascinated by money and finance sort of as a passion on the side. I went into college thinking I was going to go into medicine, follow my family footsteps. Okay. And after about three semesters, I realized this was not what I wanted to do. Okay. So then I was enjoying history, but thinking, you know, I'll just get a job. I'm a smart person. I'll get a job in finance afterwards. I guess I'll go to Wall Street. I grew up around New York City. Well, well hold on, though. It's one thing to say that, but is that was that viable for you? You're how far into college you're saying that? Well, it was probably about junior year where I thought I should, I should do this. And were your advisors saying that's viable, or did you have any mentors that were saying that's a good way to go? Because your your parents are like, oh, we've lost him. He's not going to be in the medical industry. It's it's a hopeless thing. You know, no, no one what to do. So ignorance is bliss is part of it, and I would also say that one of the wonderful parts of working academia now is I understand behind the scenes more maybe what happened to me along the way. Okay. So you get people that are successful in their career and have always been in academia, that's what they know. Sure. So Haverford, it's a very small school, not a lot of the resources you'd have at, say, some of the bigger institutions, so I didn't necessarily have access to some of the business mentors that I would have had today now that I was more Okay. So I was probably making a lot of those choices on my own in abstention. Okay. I'm trying to think, you know, because we've talked about, and you're, you're doing this new entrepreneurial thing, which we'll get into later, and people are sitting out there listening, and there's some catalyst that's going to occur that happened in your life. Maybe you just stumbled into it, and that's possible, but would make them consider maybe investing in a financial analytics or an MBA or whatever these different types of finance degrees might be. How did you stumble into that? So you, you didn't have the advisors, is I think you're saying. It wasn't deliberate. You had a minor in economics. Did you try and go get a job, or what happened? Well, so I think there'll be a couple parts of this. So okay. some lessons learned and takeaways from yep. people at different stages along this story. And there'll also be my journey and how it came about. So we'll get to both of those okay. in time. But one of the lessons learned will be just what you're alluding to now is making sure that the way I describe it, you want to have your own board, your own board of managers around you at all points. In your career, that should change and grow. It okay. should change and grow, whether that's your industry focus, your sector knowledge, whatever it might be. So if we look at someone in college thinking about, I want to grow and develop, say, depending where you're studying, some schools are really strong in helping their students think about it. I think Endicott locally has a very good reputation okay. for preparing students for careers. Other schools, maybe not as much. And so your job is, if I don't have the right people around me automatically, how do I find them and get them? So just as you're alluding to. I could have used more of those, not just truth tellers, but people knowledgeable about in their different space okay. and how I learn and grow from them. All right. So let me just reiterate what you're saying. So are you saying to me, I'm in college, I'm a sophomore, junior, I should put a personal board together? Absolutely. I think everyone should have that at all points in their life. Okay. And I've got it in different aspects of it, right? So the way I sort of divide my life when I think about my goals into what I call the five Fs. So you've got your, your friends, your family, your faith, your finances, and your fitness. Okay. And if you think those are the five big buckets, I'm never going to do really well in all five at once. Uh-huh. I can do well in three of them at once. I can be mediocre in all five. So think about almost as your board composition. As you prioritize your life into different buckets, do you have one or two people that you can go to for those different areas to say, for example, like I'm a new father. 
I would go to one of my board members and say, I am really struggling to find the time on my fitness side mm-hmm. compared to what I used to before. How did you do it when you were in sure. that sort of thing? So you want to have those people around you that I could have gone and said, hey, I'm a history major, and I'm thinking I'm going to go into Wall Street. Is that going to be an easy thing? Am mm-hmm. I being a little bit silly here? I didn't have that, and I know to do that now. Okay, well, that's a great opportunity for everybody listening to think about that. So let's just take a little tour down that road. Have you put together a personal board? I do, and I think about it as it it sort of constantly evolves. And the way I'll often think about it is the way many of us do, January is a time where people make resolutions. Okay. And I will take those five buckets, and I will say, what's the one thing, maybe two, but really what's one thing each year that I'm going to prioritize and do around those, and that's achievable. And so I've got my goals. And then I'm going to share them with my board, which also gives me a chance to reassess. Are the people, you can think of it as mentor rather than board, board sounds okay. informal. Who are the people around in my life that are going to help me in that this year? Not only guidance, but also keep me accountable. Right? Right. Some of them are friends. Some are associates. It could be anybody you want it to be. But do you have people in your life who are going to give you that salt and that light? In okay. sense? Sometimes they need to tell you, this is great. Go get it. Work hard. I will support you. Other people that say, I put the brakes on there. I don't know if that's yeah. realistic. Maybe that's a five-year goal, whatever it might be. Interesting. So it sounds very deliberate. So in January, did you, like, send them an email, call them? Do you do that together? Great question. I didn't need to change any of my board members this year. Okay. Think about it that way. Sometimes you need to, whether you're changing jobs, you're relocating to a different part of the country, or maybe you're shifting from school to work life, you might need a dramatic shift. Mm-hmm. I didn't this year. So I already have the people I interact with. And for me, it was partly just being very clear and open with them of, and an email is the best way because it's on record. Right. Here's what I'm going to do this year, and I, here's how I need you to help me do that. Right. And, you know, if someone didn't have the time and energy, they would tell me that, and they'd opt out, and I'd find a replacement for them. Did you do that in January? I did. So you sent out an email, an individualized for each board member? The group I have at the moment. They know each other? From New York, they all knew each other. So all right. So you just sent one email and said, hey, men and women, this is what I'm doing. Am I insane? Am I sane? Is this good? Give me your wisdom, caution, encouragement. Right. Okay, cool. Cybersecurity is critical for today's businesses. Savior Labs is a Boston cybersecurity firm that cares for your business and your team. We solve problems so you can focus on what you do best. Just follow the link in the show notes and enter code SECURITY for more information. So you would, I, I've heard of this, but I've not heard a lot of people get into the details of the nitty gritty of, you know, so it's like, oh yeah, I should get a personal board. That's a great idea. Alexander said that. Okay. And then you know, a year later, I still don't have a board. So I'm trying to think of, so when you ask these people to be on your board, did you say, oh, here's, here's the compensation. Here's, is it done when they're tired? So they make a mistake and say, yes. How did you approach that? I think it's dependent on the individual and yep. your relationship with them. So imagine it's a work environment and you have a senior person who you would love to mentor. Mm-hmm. How you broach that is very different from someone you might know from church or soccer or somewhere else where you have a relationship established. And I don't necessarily feel like I'm putting myself out on the line because I, I tend to think of it as a pay it forward type model sure. where I know I need to grow. And I sort of think about it. I've got three directions in my life, upwards, downwards, and sideways. Mm-hmm. I need people above me who are mentoring down to me. Yep. I need people below me that I am mentoring and bringing up. And I need people who are my peers who are probably helping keep me sane. Sure. About where should we be in this journey? Okay, cool. So if you're thinking about also the board composition of some of those different types of people, like people, the downward ones for me, I'm on their board. Yeah, exactly. The yeah. Board, and the ones my peers are going, hey, Who's on your board? How do you use your board? What right. do we, how do we talk about this? Okay. You don't have to reinvent the wheel from scratch. But what did that conversation look like to one of your mentors? 
for me, it was as simple as Tom Cole, who, who runs NCS in Manhattan, one of my dear friends and my best mentors. And it was being very clear of, you know, I know I, I'm open and ready for coaching and advice. Uh-huh. I've seen you pour into other people. Hmm. I would love some of that knowledge dropped on me. And then his acknowledgement was, yeah, we'll see, or maybe, or yes. I've been waiting for you to get to this point. (laughs) Right, but is is it just a happens to be a conversation that you have, or is there something more formal, or is there more emotional commitment to it? You know, because it's sort of like, hey, you know, would you be my mentor? I've I've seen you do all this stuff. You're a great person and all this different stuff. And they say, yeah, yeah, sure. And then they really didn't understand what it was. And so there's that aspect of it. Then there's the person who does it and then doesn't respond to your questions, but basically pries open your life and says things, hey, you shouldn't be doing this or you should be doing this. How does that work? What's that balance? Great question. It will vary. So uh-huh. I'll take the work environment. So, yep. for example, Bob Dahl speaking at event I'm running tomorrow. Let's pretend I work with Bob at Naveen. Okay. Bob is very senior. If I could get some of his time in my life on a regular basis, I would be immensely valuable. On sure. Fronts. He probably has a lot of people that ask for that. Right. So I would go in that conversation knowing in my mind what my ask is very specifically. It's probably not a lot because I may not know him. I right. have a strong relationship. I want to be able to set expectations. Hey, Bob, if you say yes to this, here's what I'd be asking of you. Mm-hmm. Here's the frequency. Here's the detail. And are you comfortable with that? And obviously you need to opt out for the person to say no or not now. Right. And that's totally fine, too, because you only want board members who are willing to live into your lives. Right. So now these people that you've selected for your board, is it that they pretty much are passive and wait for you to say something and then they respond? Or are there people that are actually reaching into your life? It goes both ways. And really? I think oh, I good. two types of those people, right? So if I had everybody who was passive and I was in a spot in my life where I was overwhelmed, Probably nothing would ever happen. Sure. You want to be thoughtful about your board composition. We talked about sort of upwards, downwards, and sideways, different sectors, different industries, different types of your life. Probably also different approaches to how they do life, different mentalities. So you've got some people who, you know, I'm a planner, I'm a project management mm-hmm. person. It's very easy for me to, to write a note in my list on my phone because that's where I live. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, every week I'm going to check in with Bob. I'm going to see how Ted is doing. Is that is that the level to which you're doing it? Are you in contact with these people weekly, Not monthly? but... For me, that is the way that I would manage someone. So I've got a buddy who's going through some tough stuff right now. Yep. I've got a note on my phone, and every three days I want to call him. And if okay. I don't, I'm going to move it to the next day. So he's more of your mentee. Yeah. Okay. All right. And there are some of the people on my board who they just wait for me. They're yep. really busy. They're happy to give me time when I'm ready. And there are others who are going to go, I haven't heard from you in a month. Are you doing okay? What's going on? Sure. And I need that. Excellent. Okay, so let's rewind a little bit here. We were talking about you're in college. You don't have a personal board, right? right? You're a junior. You're thinking about finance. The school didn't really have any advice. Now, what in the world made you think about finance? Was it the money? I've always been curious about finance and investing, which we'll, we'll find out later when we okay. talk about my current role. Yep. Right? So that had always been something I had been reading about and studying about growing up in high school. I really enjoyed, which is probably why the minor in economics made sense. I love that sort of topic, but it wasn't something I was as passionate about as the history, which I just enjoyed, right? So for me... Picking up a history book, reading on the beach, something like that is fantastic. Yeah, okay. So that was fun. That yep. was a fun mm-hmm. stuff. For me, thinking, what do I want to do with my life? What's practical? Where does the intersection between my interests and my skill set work? And it seemed to be finance. In what way? So investing and the, the idea of being involved in what actually makes the money behind the scenes and helping other people manage their money it just seemed to be something that I loved reading about so much. It would be a great fit, I thought. Okay. All right. Good. That's fair. So, yeah, right. Well, I'm a junior in college. Yeah. And you didn't really have any advisors? I didn't really. 
really know enough to get them, but I would say I was probably a little arrogant back then as okay. well with the assumption that when I got my first job a year after that, I was determined to do it all on my own, and I did. Interesting. Which I would say is actually pretty stupid. Well, yeah. Because the whole point is, why do it that hard? Well, yeah, I, I guess it's, what do you think was your rationale of, of doing it your, on your own? A little bit of hubris. Well, certainly, but I mean, why would you try and lift a car by yourself? I wanted to prove I could, and I think I probably also wanted to prove it to my father, too. I okay. felt like this would, you know, not going into the medical field where sure. very successful, I, I could be a big shot in my own yeah. life as well. So definitely a little chip on my shoulder. Okay. All right. Interesting, because I've been an entrepreneur in a lot of different roles, and I've never thought of, I'm going to do this on my own, just because it's insane. I mean, it's, you, you can't lift a car on your own. I just like... I just think about starting up a business, right? There, you could probably argue there's three different types of people that you need in the skill sets. And you could say, maybe someone would say, hey, I'm good at all of those. They're right. Probably average at all of those. Right. Good at all of those. Pick the one you're good at and find the other people you're going to partner right. with. You need those skill sets. Right. Okay, so you said a year later you got a job. So where did you go? Where would you end up? So I actually got an internship that summer. I was working at the so my junior summer. Uh-huh. I'm at the Wharton School at their Small Business Development Center. Oh, cool. And I was really pleased. I think this is going to look great on my resume. Uh-huh. And it did, but it also was a wonderful eye-opening experience for me because most of the people working there that were my peers were from the Wharton School, uh-huh. the MBAs and the undergrads. And what I quickly realized was, hmm, all of the companies that I'm looking to apply to, all of the people right up the road at Wharton undergrad, right. my peers, yeah. are also applying to me. Right. And I'm a huge believer in liberal arts. I think that makes for wonderful long-term success. But if you put the person side-by-side against a Wharton undergrad, now, I'll give a caveat. It is not required to have an undergrad business degree because there's only one Ivy League school that goes. Mm-hmm. That's Okay. Well, if it was required, they would all have it, right? Sure. So, that's my theory. But there is a tremendous learning curve. These are the best of the best. People sure. Who knew they wanted to be in finance probably from birth, right? They are hugely up the learning curve. They're enthusiastic. They're excited. They're doing all the right things. For an employer to come in, it is very easy to see them and say, plug and play. Johnny, I will put you on my desk. And sure. You'll be phenomenal. Right. You put a liberal arts student side by side, regardless of what they major in, regardless of what they know, they're going to be at least a half step behind. Now, I would argue that when you join a company, they're going to teach you the model they want. They're going to teach mm-hmm. you their methods. A liberal arts student has to catch up to the Wharton student. But once they do, if they do, they, they've got other skill sets they can take off. Okay. Research, writing, communing, presenting. Right. The Wharton students don't focus on as much. But for an initial employer, that's a, a big ass. Interesting. Okay, so you were at Wharton in um, internship. And then what happened? So after that, I was wrestling with, so that was a combination of consulting and finance for that summer, which sort of opened up my mind, oh, I've got these two different paths. Both uh-huh. look really cool. And I actually realized management consulting is kind of a perfect fit from a liberal arts background education. You know, a little bit about everything. Mm-hmm. You get to deep dive into different industries, different sectors. You're working with executives that are way above your pay grade. You're 22 years old, sitting with CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. That's mm-hmm. a phenomenal experience. So part of me thought maybe that would be a great way to start. And so I pursued those two types of jobs as I was getting out of school. And I thought, finance I've always loved, that could be great, or there's the consulting route. And I realized the finance was going to be hard, like we talked about, because the Wharton undergrad students Mm -hmm. are getting those jobs, and rightfully so. They're phenomenal. So I went down the consulting route, and that's where I started. Okay. And what year was this? This was 99. 99. Okay. We had had the debt crisis in 98. Right. Which seemed like a tough year to get the job. 99 was a little better. You're getting the internet bubble. Right. That's what I was just saying. The bubble was just forming, and then 2000, and then 2001 happened. Mm -hmm. So were you at the same job during 2001? So the way it started out, I actually joined a financial services consulting company, which okay. was a great fit for me. Thinking I'm Sounds cool. Right. And so I worked there for a year, and I was watching all of the fun stuff happening 
with the internet bubble. Okay. And all of my friends with stock options were these really cool companies, and I thought, maybe there's a better way to do this. So I actually, after a year, moved over to one of the internet consulting companies. There was Cyan, Vian, Razorfish. Yep. There's one called Mainspring that I was mm-hmm. able to join right before the IPO. I thought mm-hmm. this is a great fit. You know, we had a fully stocked kitchen. We had a bouldering wall. We had a racket ball, all sorts of stuff inside, right? Interesting. And it's me, just a year out of college, thinking, this is like the greatest business in the world. All right, uh-huh. I don't care how hard I'm working. This is fun. And when I, I look back now, I realize it was not a business technically at that point. It was right. a charity. It wasn't making right. money. Right. So we IPO'd, and that's great. Now it's exciting. It was a part of that. And then the bubble burst. Mm-hmm. And then the company was bleeding cash, mm-hmm. and they let go of all the analysts because they couldn't afford it. Sure. And this is in Manhattan? Or? This is in Manhattan. So right. low rent, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. Okay, so you got you lost a job. Lost a job, which in retrospect, while very tough at the time, was a phenomenal learning experience. Oh, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. So we've been talking with Alexander Lowry of Gordon College. It was a pleasure. Thank you for your time today, Paul. I enjoyed it. All right, well, thank you for coming in. The Edge of Innovation is brought to you in partnership with Savior Labs. Savior Labs exists to help businesses mature and strategize for the future. Learn more about Savior Labs at SaviorLabs.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Edge of Innovation, Hacking the Future of Business. For the show notes and more information about Paul, please visit paulparisi.com. The Edge of Innovation is produced by Jacob Young in conjunction with copious amounts of coffee. Music on today's episode was from bensound.com. Paul can be found on Twitter at pdparisi and on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash pdparisi. This episode, like all our episodes, is transcribed and available at paulparisi.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.